Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one under your seat, and you'll find this passage on page 1133. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Thank you, Deb. I hope you will keep your Bibles open. And if, this, if you are just now joining us in person or online, again, my name is Evan Skelton. I am one of the pastors here. And we're going to get right to work here at, in Revelation chapter 7. Keep those Bibles open. Now, um, Today we're going to kick off a new series. We just finished up a series on prayer. We're going to shift gears a little bit. And this series we're calling Follow Me. Two words spoken by Jesus which forever changed the lives of his first disciples. In fact, these two words perhaps describe um, best what a disciple is. A disciple of Jesus, a Christian, you see, is Not primarily someone who dresses or votes a certain way, comes from a certain religious background, maybe says bless her heart a lot, or has a certain kind of education. What makes a disciple is not the kind of background they come from at all. You know, in in fact, uh, regardless of what you might expect, a disciple can come, and as more you read the Bible, a disciple can come from any background A disciple of Jesus, instead, is someone who follows Jesus. Someone who has heard the same upward call that those initial apostles heard, who has looked upon Jesus in faith, and even though it may cost them their life, have followed him. A disciple of Jesus has heard and obeyed Jesus' upward call of follow me. But then... One of the most basic ways that believers respond to this call is to call call others to follow him and to help them to do so. The Christian life, in other words, is what you might call a disciple-making life. Following Jesus and helping others to do the same. It's what it means to be a Christian. Still, I know a great 
deal of Christians, great many Christians, who aren't sure where to start when it comes to making, let alone being, a disciple of Jesus Christ. They're not sure they're quite cut out for it, and uh, there uh, still some aren't sure that it's their job at all. And so over the next five weeks, we have decided to break disciple-making down into its nuts and bolts, answering some of the most pressing questions the Bible answers about disciple-making and inviting you to take some of your next steps in this mission that we share to follow one another as we together follow Christ. But this week we're going to begin by actually going to the very end. We're going to go to the end of disciple-making. Well, it's uh, not only its conclusion, but its ultimate purpose by going to the very end of the Bible itself to Revelation. Now, some of you, I know, are pumped when you heard uh, Deb read from Revelation this morning. Uh, You can't wait to find out this morning who the Antichrist is or how close we might be to the end of all things. I know I know many Christians, actually, who know very little about the rest of the Bible, but man, uh, they can transcribe their end times chart faster than you can say apocalypse. And still others, they have never heard of this book, and you might find it terribly confusing. Revelation is a book of cosmic signs, terrifying predictions, and strange beasts. In many ways, Revelation seems to belong in the uh, science fiction category on Netflix, And not just sci-fi, but the really weird sci-fi, the kind that you turn on by accident and say, what in the world am I watching? Now, I have to tell you, Revelation is one of my favorite books of the Bible, but perhaps not for the reasons that you might expect. In fact, this morning, I'm not going to speculate on the Antichrist or on the rapture. Some of you have no idea what those terms actually are. That's okay. No, in fact, we're going to consider something even more important. We're going to consider the real heart of Revelation— We're going to consider a vision of hope which shines out from the midst of Revelation in chapter 7, which should sustain and strengthen the faith of every Christian. A vision of what John calls a great multitude. And what this has to do with where history is heading and the reason why Jesus, through his church, is making disciples in the first place. This morning we're going to consider Revelation 1, I mean, seven, I'm sorry, Revelation 7, and the first question, perhaps the most important question when it comes to making disciples, why make disciples at all? We're going to consider this passage in three parts together, asking three questions about this great multitude, starting with the first. Who in the world are these people? Who are these people? Do you read verse 9 with me once again? And 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time I was in a really big crowd. Okay, let me say that again. I don't remember the last time I was in a crowd and not nervous about it, especially right now with COVID. In fact, just a few months ago, I was watching a YouTube of a flash mob, of all things. Anybody know what a flash mob is here? I'm not going to describe it for you, but nonetheless, uh, you maybe have seen this exact video. The video starts with a lone bass player, Chris, you would love this, in the middle of uh, the Plaza de Saint Roque in uh, Spain. I totally butchered the name, but he is playing Ode to Joy. But 
and he's playing by himself, but over the next five minutes, uh, another cello player comes out and joins him, and still another, and another, and another, oboes and violins and an entire brass section until a hundred-person orchestra and choir has joined together before a growing crowd of people who are stopped in their tracks, mesmerized, men and women, children and grandparents, all jostling one another to see, some of them climbing lampposts to get a better look, even more just trying to catch a fraction of this on their smartphone. All of them, and I encourage you to see this, all of them can't help as they're watching what's going on, but smile. Some of them even openly weep at what's taken place in front of them. The video has now had over 87 million views. Many of those have been uh, viewed during this pandemic. And as I watched it, to be honest, and this is just real vulnerable, I just began to openly weep with my wife. Not just at the beauty of what was going on, but honestly, out of a sense of heartbreak, wondering when something like this might ever take place again. But as I've reflected on this more, there's also something about this image that pulls on, I think, an even deeper longing I have a longing bound up with my faith as a Christian. A longing pictured here in Revelation chapter 7. A crowd gathered around this time something more beautiful, something more captivating, singing something even more wonderful. A, a, a crowd that is turned into a choir crying out on the top of their lungs, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, who are these people exactly? What is this crowd made up of? Well, disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, finally, at home with Jesus, as they've longed for. The image is one of the most important pictures we have in the whole Bible of heaven itself. Now, it's full of symbols here. We shouldn't imagine that heaven is just going to be a perpetual uh, concert. But nonetheless, the, the images here are really important for us to understand what is the goodness, the nature of heaven itself. Uh, many of these images aren't meant to be taken what you might call literally. Uh, the Bible is something we take literally, but nonetheless, we want to pay attention to genre. There's symbols here. We want to know what the symbols represent. Isn't it interesting then that Bible, the Bible describes heaven as a crowd and pictures heaven as a crowd. Notice the makeup of this crowd. The first thing that Jesus, sorry, John tells us, obviously revealed these things by Jesus, is first, the crowd is innumerable. Innumerable. It's without number. I'll tell you why this is so fascinating for me. Now, I realize in the West, we've experienced a very Christianized culture. Some of us, you know, debate over whether uh, America was a Christian nation. I'm not so certain that that is very helpful. But nonetheless, we have been in a nation where it has been easier, it's been more culturally celebrated to be a Christian, at least for many years. But when Christianity first started, it was a small and persecuted sect, despised by both Jews and Gentiles, and in many places in the world, it still is. Many have wondered, looking at Europe, if the U.S. might so soon experience the same religious, quote-unquote, decline as it becomes more and more costly to be a public Christian. After all, the, it is estimated that in Europe, 
and we see some of those, some of the markers, the trajectories in the United States as well, that in Europe, only 10% of the population identifies as a Protestant Christian today. And in many places, this number goes down to 3%. And Europe had a much longer run with Christianity than the U.S. has. Now, I don't think it's entirely accurate to say that Christianity is on the decline. Rather, I think in some ways that genuine Christians are being revealed. But regardless, we may soon see days when Christianity again finds itself in the minority. But then notice the image here. Not only is it a great multitude, it is a great multitude that no one could number. Nobody could sit with their calculator. Katie helps uh, every week to help track who's here on a Sunday morning so we might follow up with you well. This would be an impossible task. No one could number this amount of people, the people here that God has preserved, the church that he has saved for himself. A crowd of Jesus' disciples is impossible to number. The image here at the end of the Bible actually refers back to the beginning of the Bible, though, and a particular promise, a covenant that God makes with a man named Abraham. You see, prior to this, prior to when it mentions Abraham, the picture is pretty dark in the book of Genesis. It starts off pretty good, but goes very quickly bad, as the whole human race was not on good terms with God, but united, if in anything, in its rebellion and rejection of this God. They were united in opposition, intent on making a name for themselves and not for God. Again, the Bible's picture of this uh, is very strange for many of us especially when the Bible seems to say that all of us, there's something deeply wrong with us, that our nature isn't basically good, that it's bad. But then God, in his mercy, chooses to intervene, to interrupt. And this is where this rescue plan, in many ways, shines out brightly through this man called Abraham, uh, Abram at this point, and he makes him a promise. He makes him a promise to make from one man, Abram, a people who would belong to him forever, A people who would not remain small, but one day would be like the stars in the sky and the dust on the earth. He chose out of all of the families of the earth, one family to take as his own and to make something great from them, to make something numerous from them. He took a man who had no children and chose to bring many children from him. In fact, God tells Abraham at one point to look at the stars in the night sky saying, Abraham, count the stars. Are you able to count them? So shall your offspring be. The story of God's rescue in the Bible is a story of a God who determines to rescue a great multitude for himself, a family which no one could possibly number. But still, this family would be gathered from many families, which leads to the second thing that John points out. This crowd is diverse. Again, what does verse 9 tell us? That this multitude would not simply come from one nation, but every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples, and all languages. I realize that Christianity gets a bad rap for being very exclusive, doesn't it? Probably not the first person who's been looked at as strange, a little repressive and backwards for believing that my faith is the only way to God. Now, in a real way, Christianity is exclusive. Christians, as Jesus taught us to believe, believe that 
Jesus is the only path to salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Still, notice from this language how inclusive Christianity actually is. The point is, anyone can get in on this. Absolutely anyone. Paul points out in Galatians 3, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The Bible is going to unpack again the story of Abraham's family, and it would be constrained to a particular nation, the nation of Israel. But what's fascinating is when it comes to Jesus, this pro- promise, or at least the culmination of this promise, is truly experienced. The blessing for all families on the earth now actually uh, leads to the gospel being proclaimed to not just one nation, but many nations, to every people, every language, that the people who belong to Abraham aren't just those who are the biological descendants of Abraham. Paul is claiming that those who can be bound up and enjoy this promise, those who can share in it, don't have to come from his uh, bloodline, but can come from those who are bound by his same faith. If you share in the same faith of Abraham, then you too can experience the blessings that God himself said would come to him, come to his family, this family that is now as numerous as the earth. In fact, uh, as numerous as the stars in the sky. The point here, again, friends, is God comes through on what he promises. At the end of all things, this numerous people, this people without number, is one that God has uh, sovereignly been working to save and redeem, to belong to himself, coming through on the promises he gave at the beginning of all things. In other words, again, who can enjoy the promises given to Abraham? Who can be part of this people that God is rescuing from himself? Anyone, sorry, rescuing for himself, anyone who shares Abraham's faith. It's a remarkably inclusive image. Yes, only those who share his faith, but anyone who shares his faith can get in on this. Disciples can and will come from everywhere. You see, God is not a tribal God. He is the God of men and women, children and adults, Bosnians, Italians, Nepali, Jews, and Gentiles. God is gathering disciples from every nation, from among every people, in every language. God is the God of all people, you see, and from every background. He is a God of men and women who are black, brown, or white. And on that day, there are going to be a lot of people, this means, if you are a Christian, who do not look, sound, like you. Do you think on that day that anyone will be fighting over worship style or what they are wearing or who they voted for or what high school they went to or what interests that they have in common? Why in the world then, in God's church, would we sort ourselves along such silly lines now? I don't know about you. I I love our church as she is. I love every single one of you. I'm part of this church that God has chosen to belong to him in his his grand mercy, this, this precious bride. I love our church as it is, even as I'm a part of it myself, but I long for our church to look a little bit more like this, don't you? Because when the church really does join together in the same kind of remarkable unity, a unity in the midst of diversity, a unity in which not everybody looks like, sounds like one another, comes from the same background. In fact, a kind of church in which it's awkward and difficult to be friends with some of these people, a unity in in the midst of diversity where we may not have a lot in common, save the same Savior, 
we get to experience this end-time joy. Would you pray with me that we might even experience some of this now, that we might become this kind of church, reflecting the beauty of our neighborhood more completely? What steps, again, can we take for us to, in our relationships, make these kind of friendships, to welcome those who are not like you at all? God is gathering his disciples from everywhere. But still, we need to turn to the second question. How did they get here? How did they get here? This is even more important. Question turns out to be enormously important because if it really is, if this is really is a picture of heaven, then how did they get there? Are these people simply the cream of the crop? Are they the really religious? The few enlightened ones? Maybe these are the ones who impressed God the most with their resume. Those who cracked the code of his expectations. The ones who, whose scale of good outweighed the bad. Or maybe this is where we're all headed, right? If we just follow our hearts, make our way along our particular path at the mountain. Turns out, no, in every case of all of these options, none of them are accurate. In fact, as much as it may surprise us, this passage tells us that these particular people are here, in fact, for three reasons, and the first is the most important. These people are here because they have been made clean. They have been made clean. They have been purified. Notice this passage mentions not just once, but twice, what these people are wearing. It isn't about where they shopped, of course. This is a symbol of something more important. This is what exactly are they wearing, according to this passage? They're wearing what the passage says are white robes. It's a symbol for purity, for cleanness. The ones who can and finally do stand in God's presence, you see, are those who are clean. Not just on the outside, not just those who not just those who have fooled others to thinking their lives are together, but those who are pure in their innermost person. When they are seen as they actually are, they are seen to be clean. Tell you what, would you put yourself in that category? If you would, we should probably talk. You know, interest, it's interesting. Scholars and psychologists have noted that our generation, this is really interesting, carries more of a sense of guilt than many of the generations that have come before. This generation carries more of a sense of guilt than many of the generations who have come before. Now, it's different in terms of its time, I mean, in terms of the kind of guilt that we, fa- that we, we talk about, but nonetheless, the, uh, for all our talk of tolerance in our culture, we cannot shake this sense, this inner sense that we are not enough and we have not done enough. Whether you consider yourself religious or not, we can't even succeed on accomplishing our own expectations. Elizabeth Nolan Brown, who is the senior editor at Reason Magazine, cites psychological research claiming that at some level, what unites human beings is we all want to be seen as a very good person. It's very interesting. Again, I don't know that this person is a Christian at all, but nonetheless, she notes psychological research arguing that human beings all want to be seen, not just to be, but to be seen as a very good person. As it's common to put it now, we we want not just to be, but to be seen on the right side of history. 
Think about how quickly popular opinion has shifted on so many issues just over the last five to ten years. It's hard to keep up for many of us. It's really, it, is it really, I have to ask you, because we as a society have weighed all the evidence and all of us objectively are beginning to see things clearly for the very first time, isn't it possible, rather, that in a decade from now, people will see the people of this generation as the bigots, the oppressors, the ones who need to be cast aside? Perhaps our names will be the ones that are going to be taken from the schools? She argues, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, again citing research, that the reason why we see so much posturing in the news, in our advertisements, and especially on social media, again, for a generation that supposedly loves tolerance, we can be extraordinarily judgmental, expressing deep moral outrage at those who are on the other side. Brown argues that in some ways, this posturing, this uh, moral outrage, this, this uh, quickness to, to declare before whoever might be listening which, sta- which side I am on these things, it's out of our own self-interest. We, are, we feel fearful or angry over where our country is heading or why my life hasn't worked out the way that I wanted. And, we, and finding someone else to blame for it helps me feel better about myself and the role I play. It helps me sleep at night, at least knowing I'm on the right side on this, and other people have seen me on the right side on this. I'm one of them. I'm one of those who are on the right side of things. Pointing the finger offers me a way, in other words, of feeling like a very good person. It offers me a way of justifying myself. In many ways, social media has become a machine for this kind of self-justification, a way to cope with our inner sense of guilt. But it doesn't work. Not only have we become more and more unable to hear from those who disagree with us, not only have we become concerningly silent on issues we should not be silent about, afraid to be found out, afraid to be seen on the wrong side, in the end, we just end up feeling more guilty. We can't measure up to the increasing expectations, even the ones we set for ourselves. You know, in the 16th century, Martin Luther spoke of this burden of infinite guilt, he felt. Seeing sin in every interaction, he said. Burning himself out with the effort to try and make himself clean, wondering if there was any way to find relief. Thaddeus Williams, in a book that I would, I would very much recommend, called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, it's a very timely book, points out that Martin Luther wasn't a freak of nature, Luther wasn't a freak of nature in his need to be good, clean, holy, and justified, Thaddeus points out. His, these needs are irrepressibly human. Quoting someone else, he says, we all seek catharsis somehow. He points out catharsis comes from the Greek uh, katharine, meaning to be clean. Just ask the Hindu in the Ganges River, the Catholic in the confessional booth, the Muslim on his face toward Mecca, or the Jew at the Western Wall. We all have this irrepressible human need to be good, clean, holy, justified. We all seek catharsis. We all seek to be clean. But only 
according to our passage, only in Jesus is this kind of purity found. After all, this is what washed the robes of verse 14. What washed them? What made them white? Well, it did, they didn't come white, we find out. It's not that those people who performed their way into eternity, it's the ones who finally they lined up all the shades and picked the whitest among them. No, that's not how this worked at all. But the white robes have been cleaned by something else, by the blood of the lamb. Now, I don't do a ton of laundry in our house, but even I would know you wouldn't wash something with blood. You wash blood out, you don't wash blood in. Aren't you proud of me, sweetheart? Again, this is meant to be a symbol. The only thing that could wash garments as dirty as ours, as blackened by our sin and bloodied by the things that we have suffered isn't Tide Pods or OxyClean or whatever detergent your mom swears by. It is blood. Specifically, the blood of the innocent lamb slain for the forgiveness of sins. I realize this is kind of a graphic image, isn't it? Who wants to think about plunging into a fountain of blood? But this image shows up so powerfully that, uh, is so powerful here that it shows up in so many of the hymns that you'll hear us sing here. Even present songs, including several, again, uh, one, one song we sang this morning, Jesus paid it all, right? All to him I owe. One of our favorite families, uh, sorry, favorite, sorry, one of our family's favorites is called Nothing by the Blood. Our kid, our kids, uh, especially Oliver, has been singing this since he could sing. It's uh, pretty amazing. But nonetheless, I want to read its lyrics and just listen to these, listen to these lyrics and what it says about the Christian's hope. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, not of good that I have done. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Now by this I'll overcome. Now by this I'll reach my home. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friends, your political alliances, your schooling choices, your posts on social media cannot justify you. Only the blood of Christ can make you clean. And only those who have been, in a sense, washed by that blood through faith in Jesus Christ, can experience this day where those who gathered there are all in white robes, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. But the second reason that they are here is not just that they have been purified, it's that they have been preserved. They have been kept safe. I want us to notice the language of verse 9. It tells us that this crowd, not just that this crowd was before the throne, what does it tell us? It tells us that they were standing before the throne. Okay, no duh, that doesn't seem like a very important detail. Standing before, what does it matter if they were standing or sitting? Friends, uh, let me give you an illustration of this. Uh, I I really like boxing movies. Uh, Anybody else really like boxing movies? Some of you are going to go and tell me that I shouldn't as a Christian condone violence. But nonetheless, I love these. I, I grew up watching movies like Rocky, okay, or Cinderella Man. Um, I think of the first Rocky movie, uh, not to ruin it for you, uh, but hey, it's been out for a while, so it's your fault. Uh, the, this movie, uh, again, is, how does it end? Technically, Rocky loses. Apollo Creed, the reigning heavyweight champion, retains his title by split decision, but the movie actually ends on a very high note, doesn't it? Even though 
Rocky was defeated in the end, the reason the story and the final fight is so compelling is at the end of it, this small-time outmatched club fighter with hits to the head and swollen eyes is still standing. There's something about that in, uh, something about this in our image here. See, one of the remarkable things about Revelation is how honest it is about the kind of suffering that comes with following Jesus. There's a reason Jesus says in coming to follow him, as we've been talking, it it includes a counting of the cost. Not a promise that your life is going to get better. In many ways, your life may get harder. Nonetheless, not only does it require us to die to ourselves and to some of our deepest desires, his disciples, Jesus, Jesus himself warns, would face furious opposition, often verbal, sometimes quite physical. Many lost jobs in the first century, friendships, homes. Many were cast out of their own families. We have records in the Bible that Jesus' followers were beaten, rejected, mocked, and some of them even killed. As John puts it, they have gone through great tribulation. Now, I have to give a word of caution to those who have studied Revelation before. You're going to hear great tribulation. You're going to think, oh man, you're going to put all sorts of ideas into that word. Uh, Many might think it refers to a specific period known as the Great Tribulation, but taking the context seriously, which is where we need to begin, it seems to that this Great Tribulation here refers not to some seven-year trial, but to the entire period after which Jesus left his disciples. I don't have time to go into why for all the reasons here other than to say that I'm convinced the context And even the reading of Jesus' teaching leads us there, that in many ways we are, in a sense, in this time of great tribulation now. Jesus warned his followers, in fact, in John 16, 33. You know what he says to his followers? In the world, you will have tribulation, using the same word here. Starting when? Right away. If Jesus faced it, they too would face it. They would have great tribulation. And friends, great tribulation still speaks to our present experience if you are a Christian. It's only a matter of time before your faith costs you something and costs you dearly. And it may increasingly cost you as the years go on. I tell you as a parent, I want to spare my kids from hurt, from loss, from uncertainty you know I can't? Some of you have been parents a lot longer than me would tell me I can't. Especially if my kids become Christians as I pray that they do. Their faith will cost them. And it is important that it does. Still, what hope do we have that Christians will be delivered safe to Jesus in the end? Well, you know, when we look back at this chapter 5, I think we actually, sorry, if we need to look back two chapters to an image, not of Jesus' disciples, but of Jesus himself to understand this. What hope do we have that Christians will be delivered safe to the end? The image of Jesus in verse 6, chapter 5. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb doing what? Standing. As though he had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now leave off the seven horns and seven eyes for a second. Again, this is not something you should draw out in your journal. This is, again, symbols. Revelation is a bit strange. But again, consider the main image, an image of a lamb, a slain lamb, a lamb 
whose throat had been cut, its blood poured out a final sacrifice to atone for human sin, a lamb that was killed, dead. And yet now he is standing. As strange as the picture might seem, this image actually illustrates the gospel for us in a powerful way. Jesus, who is called the Lamb of God, who died in the place of human sinners, is no longer dead. He is risen. He is standing. And because he stands, so will his disciples. The crowd here has suffered great tribulation. And when it comes down to it, there is no reason that this crowd should be standing at all. But because Jesus is standing, they are too. And this means, friends, that there is nothing a Christian can lose that is not already theirs in Christ. It is one of the things that makes Christians so dangerous. You talk to persecuted Christians, one of the things that their persecutors find to be so dangerous about Christians and so frustrating is that no matter how much their opponents fight to shut them up, there is nothing they can truly threaten or take from them in the end that will not be restored to them on the final day. The frustration of not being able to use any reason, any pain, any loss, you can't threaten anything that that Christian knows they will not soon regain. But notice also verse 17. I wish I could spend the whole morning here. It tells us that this lamb, this slain lamb, the lamb whose blood cleanses us of guilt will be their what? Their shepherd. Come on, John, you're mixing your meta metaphors. Stick with one. Is he a lamb or is he a shepherd? The point is the symbols here, okay? The, that it's still a comfort you can take in the, in the face of fear and loss. And the courage you can take when compromise seems the easiest way out is that the lamb, the lamb, is your shepherd. He will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. He will lead you through pain and loss. He will lead you through difficulty and opposition and loneliness. And he will bring you to the other side safe, preserved for himself and for your joy forever. The lamb will be your shepherd. Your God, who has been your shelter, will forever be your shelter. He will shelter you with his presence. Verse 16. Notice these images. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Verse 17. He, speaking of the lamb, the shepherd, will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, we shed a lot of tears in this life. It's normal. Christians aren't the ones who uh, should pretend like their lives are fine. Life is hard, especially as a, as a Christian. It's important that we're honest about it. Now, we don't gripe and complain about it, but nonetheless, these tears, isn't it know that there's going to be one day, a day where they will be wiped away to shed no more tears anymore? And who's going to wipe those tears? God himself, your shepherd. Leads to our final question, and perhaps the most important question. Why are they there? We're in a series, again, of making, about making disciples. And this week, our concern really is why. And we have not really gotten there yet, have we? We've seen again that this crowd, what they look like, that this innumerable, diverse crowd, and we see that this crowd isn't those who perform their way into the kingdom, that those who are in heaven with God forever are the ones that God has purified. They've simply confessed faith in that slain lamb, that, that lamb who has purified them and preserved them to determine to make, him, make them precious to him, to shelter them with his presence. But still, why are they there? 
Think of clar- how clarifying and uh, motivating a clear why in your life can be. If you're on a team, if you're on a sports team of some kind, why do you work out? Why do you practice day after day? Well, hopefully your why is clear. Some of it's not clear, and that's why you complain to your coach. Well, it's so your team might perform at their best, and so that you might win. Okay, okay, let's think. Uh, if you're a student, why do you study week after week? Uh, not only that you might get a degree, but that degree might set you free for the kind of career that you hope to have. If you have cancer, why go through the torture of chemo and risk surgery so that you might have life on the other side? You see how a why, knowing your why, helps you persist through difficulty. It helps, you, helps clarify where you are going and how you know when you will get there. A why clarifies not only where we're going, it kickstarts our passions, especially when it's difficult to continue on. And this is in particularly important when it comes to discipleship. After all, discipleship is not an end in itself. Sometimes when we say that our church exists to make disciples, that actually uh, it doesn't start in the right place. Making disciples isn't the ultimate aim. It might be the ultimate mission of a church. But we don't just teach and apply the gospel to others because we should, even because Jesus told us to do it. Although that would be enough, friends. Let's just be honest. If Jesus says it, we should do it. But it's more than that. Jesus gives us purpose, and this gives us the vision of why. Why is it that a crowd of disciples has been gathered there by God himself to worship God forever. That they may again cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That they might join with all the creatures and authorities in heaven saying blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. John Piper puts it this way. Missions, and you could say making disciples, disciple-making missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, not disciple-making, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, John Piper says, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. I have to tell you, the reason we struggle in disciple-making is not ultimately because we do not know what to do, although that may be true. It's not ultimately because we are afraid of bungling it up or that we think it's someone else's job. The reason we struggle to teach and apply the gospel to others, to help them follow Jesus, is because we struggle in our worship. We struggle to see God as the best and most beautiful thing. Our hearts haven't fully awoken to all that God has done for us in Christ. And if you're like me, the gospel sometimes has become boring to us and we're convinced our happiness is found in something else. We struggle to make disciples because we struggle in our worship. What corrects this? The gospel itself. Seeing Jesus, the Lamb, and the shepherd, by whose blood our robes have been, compl- have been clean. We can give up on our self-justification project now, having been justified and bound up in him. 
by whose care we are being preserved now, even through great tribulation, even loss and grief. Seeing the one we are made to serve, the one in the midst of the throne of God, who deserves all glory and power forever and ever, the one whose glory turns out to be for our joy, just as this will be the chorus of the worship on that day. It is the reason for our worship right now. That's why we won't ever give up on talking about Jesus. You should hear about Jesus in every song, every sermon. Everything we do is about this slain lamb who is our shepherd. And it is seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that provokes us to worship, causes us to endure in worship forever. We make disciples because the lamb deserves worship. And he deserves worship from everyone. Lord, think of, Lord, uh, friends, think of the magnificent love that we have been swept into. Do you want to experience more of this love more tangibly in your life? Do you want others to experience it with you? Tony Payne and Colin Marshall put it in this way in their book, The Vine Project. This is why we want to make more and more disciples of Jesus Christ, because God's goal for the whole world and the whole of human history is to glorify his beloved son in the midst of the people he has rescued and transformed, which starts now and will go on forever. Friends, this is the purpose of our church. It's the purpose of our life, to worship God and to help others do the same. And we do so by making disciples. It is the why. It clarifies why we spend money. It clarifies why we spend time on anything. It clarifies why we show up this morning. We are going to look more at the nuts and bolts of this in the coming weeks, but this is why we make disciples, to worship God. Because God deserves and will receive the worship he, deser he deserves. And we want more to worship him with us, don't we? Friends, let's pray. Lord, you're good to us. We owe you everything. We owe you our deepest, our most passionate and profound worship for us to confess what is true and unchanging about you and what has taken place on our behalf through Jesus Christ. And it's not as real as it should be to our hearts. Lord, would you transform us through worship for greater worship and that worship would be so compelling to those who are giving their worship elsewhere that they would jo join us in worship of the only one who truly can satisfy, who can protect, who can make clean, the lamb who is the shepherd. And Lord, would you give us wisdom as we move on in this series about where you would send us to make disciples, how we need to begin making disciples here among these real people, and that we would worship ourselves as we seek others to worship beside us, helping them by whatever means necessary to give you the glory that you're due, removing whatever stands in its way. We, we pray, though, in the light of the one who deserves all strength and might and thanksgiving and glory and power forever and ever, our lamb in whose blood our robes are washed if we belong to him by faith. And it's for his sake we pray. Amen.